0: She was wonderful When she was fine
1: Judas Priest's Victim of Changes from Sad Wings of Destiny, this is the Requiem Metal Podcast, Proto-Metal Countdown Number 4, 1976, I'm Mark.
2: And I'm Jason, and uh, yes, once again, we're back. We're getting... We're, new studio. Yeah, new studio. The woodworking once again. studio
1: in the basement right now. So
2: I think uh, for people keeping score at home, I, I feel like this might be, is this the fifth place we've recorded with, that's your residency? Well, there's probably more than that. You think? <laughs> I think there were two over in the Ann Arbor area. Oh yeah, there, three. Was, there was there was three over in the Ann Arbor area. And then yeah. there was a uh, this is the third one in Hamtramck because you had the little apartment for a while. I know it's we recorded. It. It's the fourth one Hamtramck. Yeah. Oh yeah, and then the and then my house. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, and my apartment in Romeo too. So this would be oh, like yeah. the eighth or ninth location that the we've Uncle John's
1: some. cabin. I mean, there's been a handful. Yeah,
2: that's of true. We've gone off. We've gone satellite. Uh, done some in Philly, obviously with Chris yeah. and stuff like that before too. So
1: oh yeah. Eventually we'd
2: like to, traveling like microphone. To,
1: this is a house we actually own now. So I'm in the process of fixing this thing up. That's why everything's been a little. Hectic lately, but I want to make some kind of studio booth. Yeah, to be yeah. kind of
2: soundproofed down here eventually. And then I'm also in the process of doing some finishing work on my house. So hopefully I can seg- section off a little part too. But although the living room works pretty fine with the yeah. the table we got. So, yeah. but yeah, if you're uh, kind of new to the the podcast a little bit, um, you might not know that we are rapidly approaching episode 200. And so what we decided to do is put together a countdown of. Uh, the most impactful years leading up to the birth of kind of modern heavy metal, which we kind of, you know, arbitrarily deem 1983, thanks to like MTV, Motley Crue, Metallica. It's kind of like the big unleashing of a lot of movements, you know, glam and thrash primarily, um, you know, at that point, you know, Ozzy had kind of gone mainstream and, and, you know, a lot of things happened in 83 that designates that as kind of a turning point year. And so we kind of looked at the years sixty eight up to eighty two, and we've kind of just been ranking them. or uh, We already ranked them months ago, and then compiled the data between Mark and I's rankings. And here we have uh, number four. So we're yeah. we're we're in the we're definitely in the top five, and now we are we're getting dangerously close. We've so. already
1: exceeded ten episodes. Yeah yeah, like,
2: yeah, yeah, with the doubles as yep, far as numbering yep, goes. Yep. So yeah, we know it's not gonna. It's it's just in our mind the. Thematically, the 200th episode, sure. you know, with, with some of these doubles. But um, one of the things I point out to Mark that was real interesting about this year is, is, you know, it's been kind of fun to play a lot of, um, I guess, more obscure stuff uh, that I've been able to unearth when I put together my countdown. And I know a lot of the the listeners out there do follow the daily countdowns that I post on uh, Twitter. And on Facebook, uh, hashtag Requiem Metal History, if you wanna kinda go back and backlog and start at the beginning. And then also a friend of ours, Brian Wendorf, Has done a Spotify playlist as well that you can check out. I think it's just under Requiem Metal for people that have Spotify. There's Um, a lot of it, but not all of it. Yeah, he can. uh, He'll he'll like Facebook me when like a song I post is not on Spotify, kind of disappointingly, you know. So it's it's to the best of our ability. And I think as Mark gets a little bit more settled in the house, and as we get some things kind of going, I have also put together a, a Google. Sort of compilation of all of it that hopefully we can upload to uh, the fa- uh, the excuse me the website, and hopefully the links stay alive. Because if the links don't stay alive, then it's just a giant pain in the ass. Then it's just like a something you scroll through to read about what the the songs are basically so, yeah
1: we'll see we don't know
2: yeah it's a it's an experiment where we're still playing with the the brand new website and things like that too but uh you know the website for people that are you know want to go back and, and listen to some of the older episodes too is uh www.requiemmetal.com i think the first like 50 60 episodes are up there because we've had some uh technical trouble with those, I've had a lot of requests on Facebook and Twitter. People asking where they can find more of those, and I've just kind of told them to be patient. Usually, they're really cool about it. They're like, yeah, we get yeah. it. We know you're kind of in the process of changing over. We even got some uh, props on um, how the new website looks. You know, so okay. that's that's Mark's uh, expertise as yeah. the art the resident artiste. Thank you, Squarespace, for their easy yeah. you know WYSIWYG yeah. stuff so, But yeah, but no one needs to know that. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's you can get a lot of cool stuff up there. You can uh, sign up to be a Patreon. Uh, we got a lot of really great feedback um, before, um, in between when we recorded the last episode. Um, nineteen was that eighty one? Was that the last episode? I think it was. I think I think number five was nineteen eighty one. Uh, yeah, it was. It was Benjamin, Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But uh, after we recorded that, we uploaded one of the Patreon um, Almond Brothers shows, the the two-parter that we did um, a few months back around Christmas time. And we got a lot of really, really cool feedback on that. So if you didn't hear about that through um, social media, because maybe you're an anti-social media person, which I can completely understand, uh, and you want to access those uh, Almond Brothers um, episodes, which I think are really, really fantastic, we did it with our old record store manager Mike Johnson who had joined us before on the Stooges and MC5 episodes mm-hmm. but just I think I was listening at Mo on the Lawn I had kind of forgotten how um, we kind of got deep into some pretty like insightful things about like the, the philosophy of music and improvisation and, and stuff. Yeah. So it's, well, it's, it's
1: nice just, to, I mean, no matter what, I think no matter what we're talking about music wise, it kind of, it doesn't matter what artists we're, we could do a Stevie wonder episode and it would still work within our format.
2: You know? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Mark and I have enough interests outside of just the, the pure cult, you know, metal genre that we can kind of draw on a lot of that stuff. And it's always fun to be able to talk about things that are, I think a little bit more challenging because um, not to say metal stuff is easy for us, but it's like, it's our second nature, you know, I yeah. mean, like it's so familiar to us that, you know, I thought with the Allman brothers, it was cool. Cause it, I think we were both a little bit challenged to like, sort of figure out how to penetrate a band that we, we didn't know as well as say Mike did. Um, which was cool. But if, yeah, you can sign up to be a Patreon to, to get access to that. Uh, we also I have ch- you can get it at the $1 level. Yeah, Maybe. for sure. I mean, yeah, like we're we're just happy that you know anything, and we'll eventually release those episodes to everyone. We realize not everyone financially can can get involved in Patreon and things like that. Sure, um, I, I totally get that, but we just wanted to give a little something special to the people that have donated. And, I was
1: thinking um, we should probably we've got some other stuff in the pipe coming down. We've got the uh, the Peter Green episode. Yeah, we but could. we've also got that gathering two we part have the two-part gathering. we could put up on Patreon. I think. We could before. I just yeah. need to get the songs from you. Yeah, that's just fine. to like throw some more stuff up there. And Then it's easier for like when. You know, it gets real hectic around the house. I'm like, Well, I can just we can link those up to be like the next episode. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I figured the gathering stuff would probably even go up as two oh one and two oh two anyways, if you wanted but we could i mean we haven't recorded you know i did stuff in
1: chunks now like just okay spend three or four hours doing like a
2: bunch of episodes together yeah that's how house cleaning is for me i don't do it for like a week and a half and then i just (laughs) go ham for like four or five straight hours you know otherwise
1: i start forgetting how to do stuff and it's
2: like yeah you're out like out of habit almost you know that's why i think a lot of times when mark and i get together we try and like record a couple you know we used to do like three or four i don't know how the hell we did that that was like the the Glory days where we'd like record at like 4 a.m. and um, drive home and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, it
1: was before I was married and yeah, stuff too. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> it was
2: just as we got older, uh, the stamina is just not there for the mental. I think more than it's, it's half
1: visiting and ha- you know, hanging out, yeah, for out sure. And half you know, we need show, to catch so.
2: up and bullshit and stuff. But now we at least try and do you know, try and do two at once because I feel like once we're like in the swing of things, a lot of times, it's like, oh, okay, we we feel the flow of like yeah. how to podcast again, you know, because yeah. it's been a month or so. Um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of you know all the stuff uh, that's that's kind of going on there. Is, you know, we put together this giant history of heavy metal, and then like I said, I've compiled all of this, and now we have arrived at 1976. Which um, I was telling Mark before is a this is where I was getting to my point originally. Um, there's not as much obscure stuff in 1976. This is kind of uh, at least recorded. Yeah, the, yeah, I'm sure there were bands like that we eventually fell in love with that were doing weird stuff in their garages. Oh, like weird and, private press yeah, stuff. And yeah, that. but uh, it, it, it is a very much, um, I don't want to say a mainstream year because I think a lot of these bands were still doing like really edgy stuff at the time in 1976, but mm-hmm. these are bands that I think now um, that we look at as like classic rock. You know, these are like some of the movers and shakers of like the entire like metal industry, whether we're talking, you know, Sabbath, Priest, Thin Lizzy, do the Ramones, Blue Oyster Cult, Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, Kiss, you know, Rush, yeah. ACDC. I mean, that's it's like what a classic rock station used yeah, to sound that, like, exactly. <laughs> um, and so it's it's fascinating because for a lot of those bands, I, and I was trying to like figure out like a, a reason why, and I haven't come up with any like you know real proof, but I have some theories on it. And I think what you saw in the early seventies is you saw like a lot of um, bands that were still. Experimenting with like the the leftovers of like the '60s psychedelic garage rock stuff, so there was a lot of um, Sabbath copycats, Zeppelin copycats. Like there was a lot of that still going on, and there was almost like a I, kind of like a they didn't really know what they were doing, and that's what gave them kind of the charm. I, yeah. I know there's a word that's escaping me right now that would would naive naivete. Yeah, there was a cool like naivete to like some of the garagey psych. Like, they were compiling all these genres together and just, like, you know, you think of, like, Iron Butterfly. What the hell were they? You know, like, they were yeah. just throwing, like, you know, organs and heavy sab riths and garage rock stuff. And I think it's kind of, it's died out by the mid-70s. I think mm-hmm. a lot of it's kind of streamlined off. But it's also before the rise of two, I think, gigantic underground things, which is punk and the new album scene and in the last couple episodes we've talked a lot about the new wave of british heavy metal because we were in the kind of later 70s early 80s and so i think this is that quiet before the storm moment where i think a lot of bands we think of as like classic rock kind of get their chops together and really like put down their like anchor records in 1976 Mm -hmm. you know i was i was kind of telling mark you know um rush uh 2012 is their commercial breakthrough in the u.s uh all the worlds a stage which was also released by rush this year that's the first u.s top 40 record for rush kiss destroyer which comes out in this year and kiss actually releases two records which we'll talk about later it's their first platinum record Thin Lizzy gets their only gold U.S. record and the biggest song of their careers in '76. Agents of Fortune from Boaester Cult was their first platinum record and their biggest like commercial hit song. Aerosmith uh, rocks shipped platinum, you know, uh, and had two top forty hits off of it. You know, Free for All from Ted Nugent I think was one of his big kind of commercial breakthroughs. So you know, you start to go through some of those bands I just listed off, and it's like you know, Rainbow Rising is sort of like their ascendancy to become like this, you know, so it's kind of like, and Judas Priest said, Wings of Destiny, which we'll, we'll get into in just a second. Cause that's what we started off with. That's really like, even though it's their second record, that's like the first, what a lot of metalheads see is like the first, like authentically like focused. Things Priest came together. And, yeah. 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 And it's funny because like, as that next wave of metal is like on the rise up, you're seeing the other pattern Sabbath. And we'll talk about technical ecstasy they're sort of petering. They're, you know, kind of running on fumes a little bit. Not that there aren't some great songs on Technical Ecstasy and Never Say Die, but those records are looked at, I think, a little bit differently than sort of the big six. People think, yeah,
1: they're like the waning years of yeah, the band.
2: Yeah, and you can see some inconsistencies and some ideas that maybe didn't take root. And there's a charm to those records, certainly, but, uh, you know, that's kind of Sabbath on, like, that way down. Um, Deep Purple breaks up in 1976. You know, mm-hmm. again, one of those original wave sort of bands. Um You know, Sammy Hagar leaves Montrose. They were sort of a big American rock uh, metal act in the early 70s. Um, You know, you also see um, there was one other correlation I was going to make, and it just escaped me. Um, It was in line with Sabbath and Purple and and stuff like that, one of the the original movers and shakers. If it comes back, I'll, I'll let you know, but... Again, it's it's really really interesting how like some bands are in the upward trajectory and then other bands are kind of on the, a totally different sort of movement down that area
1: or that era. I think people move. I mean, let see how many of these bands have two albums a year mm-hmm. coming out. Things just moved way quicker for sure. It's like okay, this we're done. We're going to go on to this thing. I think that that was kind of the wasn't that the, I guess kind of the beginning era of the you know you had the band but then the, the solo guy going off doing his own thing. Kind Coopie. of like you know Cooper did that around. That was, he did that
2: earlier, I think. Cooper was earlier, yeah. Um, but, you know, Kiss is a year away for... Did they do that in 77? Is that when they released their their four records, or is that 78? I don't I, don't I can't remember right. when the, they did that. My, my history
1: is not real good fourth. right now. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, you know, you're oh, Uriah Heap. Uh, this is their last record in 1976 with uh, original vocalist David Byron. And yep. that's kind of like the end of like the original sort of Heap era in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And a lot of people don't look at that record high and mighty as... Um, one of their stronger ones, like some of those earlier records and stuff? So it's interesting that some of those bands are right there at the beginning of the 70s. They're kind of, you know, being brought out to pasture almost. And some of those bands that sort of got their start a few years later and kind of had to get, take a few years to get their chops, they're hitting their stride in 76. And so I think yeah. that's why this year ranks so high. I think it has maybe not as deep of a pool of um, records that came out this year, but I think the highs are really high. And you, again, you get two records from Lizzie, two records from ACDC, two records from Kiss. You know, I mean, that's two records from Rush if you count the the live record mm-hmm. uh, that comes out, um, and even two records from Led Zeppelin. And and the, oh, that was the other band I was going to say. In a lot of ways, Presence um, is kind of the last gasp of like a really um, focused hard rock driven Led Zeppelin. Um, they had just put out Physical Graffiti the year before in '75, and that's essentially a double, you know. Two records then. Um, and it's almost like Achilles' Last Stand, which we're not going to hear. Um, but it's it's a great record. I mean, that or a great song. You know, it's got these proto-Iron Maiden, like Phantom of the Opera, like almost like some of that twin lead sort of melody. I mean, really, like, Paige is, like, going for it. It's like a, I think, a 10 or 11-minute long song. It's just, you know, it's epic, like Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. And really, after that, you know, they do In Through the Outdoor and... Um, just stuff that's not as, like, sonic, I guess, you yeah. know. So, in a lot of ways, like, I put, like, that's, like, Zeppelin's, like, last great kind of hard rock statement in a lot of ways. And I put that in the same category as kind of Deep Purple breaking up, you know, Sabbath kind of on the, the it's kind down of the end slide. of an era, yeah. Yeah, it really is sort of the end of the era, end of this beginning. It's, it's like the ascendancy of, like, the American hard rock scene with, like... You know, uh, North American. If you throw you know yeah. in there, yeah. uh, Nugent, you know Aerosmith, you know all those bands that are really firing you know, all these cylinders. It's
1: you almost yeah you know, the second generation of hard
2: rock. Yeah, kind of coming in. I think. And Priest is like really interesting too. If we talk about like the proto metal years, these formative years leading to kind of like modern heavy metal, because Priest really is the first band to really adopt. The term heavy metal and not shy away from it. You know, yeah. it was used by journalists for a lot of years to describe a lot of bands, um, but Priest kind of said, "Okay, yeah, we, we this is us." Yeah, I think uh, you know Dio
1: a, always called. I think up until maybe the mid '80s, always referred to you know his stuff in Rainbow as like rock and roll, rock and roll.
2: Yeah, and so, I get that. I mean, but, but, but the he same had thing. all the
1: accoutrement yeah. of a metal guy yeah I mean lyrically visually everything was you sure. know, heavy metal to the yeah I mean to in the the a sense. lot of ways
2: like Rainbow Rising almost like invents power metal from like a yeah. lyrical standpoint yeah. you know what I mean like just the the fantasy element the Dio the sort pomposity of, of the in. whole thing yeah, too yeah. It's, it's pretty wild you know and we started with Victim of Changes which is in a way this uh, iconoclastic sort of song that that kicks off Sad Wings of Destiny and I think if you had probably bought Rock and Rolla I can only imagine if you had bought Rock and Rolla in like 75, or or I think 75, yeah, and then like bought that and put Victim of Changes on. You kind of it would have been like, Whoa, yeah, like this is this is a big leap forward. Um, you know, there's something iconic about that song in a way, it's really like kind of like the title track for Black Sabbath, it's kind of like writing the rules of like the second wave of heavy metal. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's got so many different little like movements in it, and the things that Halford does. You know, vocally in the middle, you know, when he hits that last yeah. "Victim of Changes," um, which Mark and I are going to see Priest uh, a week from a week from tomorrow, we, uh, a week from uh, from Friday, so yeah, a week and two purple, days. So. and Deep Purple. Uh, and last time we saw Priest, he was still able to hit that note yeah. on "Victim of Changes." Yeah, you know, so it's really interesting about that song. I I, I always wondered about it, but um, I found this in the the top 500 heavy metal songs of all time from Martin Popoff. It's Ian Hill talking about Victim of Changes, and he said, Victim of Changes started life as Whiskey Woman. That was what it was originally called. It was written uh, by Ken and Alan Atkins, originally, the the original the vocalist. Area. Yeah, and it was sort of put in the back burner for the first album, and it ended up on Sad Wings in a very, very revamped way. Helford put some new lyrics on it, and then Glenn kind of got involved and worked with Ken and changed the rhythm. So it was kind of cool that like that's just one of these primordial songs that have just always been kind of floating and... And in a way, it signals, like, really the rebirth of and the rise of this band that's going to be in the Mount Rushmore of of heavy metal. Oh, easily, yeah. Um, So I think Sad Wings of Destiny is, you know, for me, I I think when we did the Priest three-parter back in the day... And again, it 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 probably changes for me and fluctuates. But I think for me, I know for you. I think you said maybe sin after sin was yours. But I think sad wings it changes for all me the time. Is, I mean, it's still not, my my favorite. Any of
1: that ranking stuff is like yeah. if you if you're like hard about that. Like I don't know anybody that says like 15 years ago this is my number one favorite record. It, 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 if it doesn't change, there's something wrong with for you. sure
2: for sure. Yeah, uh, but I guess gun to my head, I would probably still say sad wings is like my go to that I, I grab. There's something like yeah. That. Um, there's a warmth to it too it's before they get like really like kind of uh stripped down like that screaming for vengeance defenders sound which i love but that's like a, they beef up yeah they they simplify beef up
1: but yeah the, the all the pomp and circumstance is taken out of it yeah. at that point which yeah. I don't know is, is good. I mean, I like that they have that many different eras. That, yeah,
2: it's you, know, depending on what mood you're in,
1: you can listen to like Painkiller or Sad Wings or, you know, Turbo or, yeah. I mean, it's all, they still, every, I don't think Turbo has fallen out of their set list in, no, no, 20, 30, you know, 25, 30 and years. And I've gone back to
2: that record and found a couple of like other songs on that record that I, I kind of like. Um, it's
1: interesting. I mean, for to try to, you got to imagine being a, an established rock band playing, you know, forever the same shit. And then new technology comes out mm-hmm. to where you'd be like, you know, Maiden did it with a Seventh Son. Sure. As well as, like, how can you, like, adopt some new technology but still kind of keep your sound? It's yeah. Interesting. I mean, kids probably get pissed off and, like, oh, this is selling out or it sounds gay or whatever. But it's nice to, uh, in retrospect, to go back and see how, like, varied and...
2: That I they mean, tried that something. was risky, too. Yeah, for know? sure risky.
1: And it was, like, really flirting with, uh, you know, with Rob's sexuality, too. It was like It's a very erotic record, yeah. you know, when you, especially that you look at the imagery,
2: like all this stuff is okay. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I but guess nobody if, can see that stuff. In, I think know. of that original era, I think Ram It Down still the record. I just don't pull out that much. It, there's really not much. Title track's okay. Yeah. So it's just not something like... No,
1: I think the double bass, or the double, the drumming's all fake.
2: Oh, is it? It's all programmed, okay. yeah. Before they brought in um, Scott Travers. Scott Travers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. from Painkiller, mm-hmm. so. From Racer x um, yeah yeah which is a cool little shred band uh, that i found um so yeah so priest kind of like is is laying out the the template for that so i think in this first set uh looking at 1976 we're going to kind of keep our attention on england and kind of look at what was sort of happening over in england and then at the end of this next set of music we'll uh take a really radical turn uh, to America with a sneak preview of something we talked a lot about in the 1977 show. So Thin Lizzy is another band uh, that are kind of hitting their stride here, and they put out two records. Um, the first one was Jailbreak, which was their gigantic uh, you know, gold commercial breakthrough. The Boys Are Back in Town, huge song. Um, even the title track is still kind of a yeah. classic rock kind of tune. Um, the tune I sort of selected to play from Jailbreak um, and I didn't pick a song from Johnny the Fox um, because there were a couple I could have picked. Uh, I think Don't Believe a Word and Massacre are both really yeah. pretty hip tunes. Uh, but just for time's sake, I just played one because I think you, you get the, the was, idea. And I think we're inevitably going fantastic. to do a, do a thin, <laughs> yeah. thin, Lizzy, uh, thin Lizzy show down the road. True. Um, but even because the band, and I, when I was doing some research on Johnny the Fox and um, Jailbreak, they kind of talk about how they put... A lot of their eggs in the jailbreak basket, and then they that's were,
1: how boys kind of felt.
2: <laughs> yeah, they were kind of asked to go back to the the drawing board, and they just didn't have a lot of great songwriting ideas enough to make like a, a really great record. They had a few good songs in Johnny the Fox, and it's really interesting too because I was reading about how um, boy, oh, Blue Oyster Cult, which we'll talk a little bit more about them later. It was a really interesting thing that, that, that they were kind of being asked, like, why do you think Agents of Fortune? Uh, which is the record they put out in this year. Why do you think you kind of like just kind of got it together a little bit more commercially and songwriting focus wise? And they said, honestly, it's because we put out a live record in 75. And that by was putting out a live yeah. record, it gave them more time to like come up with songwriting ideas. They weren't being, f- because it was, it, it filled the slot of a commercial of a studio record for your like your label obligations, yeah. And so then you actually were able to maybe like go back to the drawing board and come up with like better things. And I think Kiss probably did the same thing with Destroyer. They had put out Alive, and that bought well, them some broke time them too. It broke them, yeah. but it also like gave them some time to maybe like like not just like retread ideas because they were just running on empty all the time, yeah. touring studio, touring studio yeah. kind of thing. Um, so it's interesting. I you know we it's a lot to ask. I think of bands to put two records out in one year and i think you can see like with the thin Lizzy example like there is a downside to it. it's you know sure it, it's hard to but a lot of these bands out. if you're
1: if it's your first two three records you've probably got a pretty good back that's true. Of stuff yeah. to dig but on. by
2: this point lizzy has been around for four or five years so yeah probably a, a little took them while to even yeah.
1: really get their stride
2: either yeah they were really like kind of just mainly focus in the uk i think for yeah. a long long time you know but emerald's a song like um i knew it from jailbreak but like i didn't have many um i don't think i had too many thin lizzy gems when i was in college and then it was the mastodon like uh remission like bonus track and i yeah. heard this song i was like this song's incredible it was the first song that like mastodon i think had done that sounded like what i think later mastodon would sound like where it was a little bit more sing-songy and catchy. It wasn't so complex. But, yet, yeah, like, you know, Brain's drumming is just, like... Oh, it's insane. Awesome. It's but, following
1: but, the guitar gallows
2: yeah, and stuff. But the but the, the drumming on Emerald's awesome, too. And yeah. so, like, I went back and really, like, focused on the original, and, um... I think I really gained a. That's when I started to gain a lot of sense of appreciation for Thin Lizzy back in college. Was through that Mastodon cover. I'd always loved Jailbreak, and in fact, it's a funny story. Grand Kuhn, who's been on some episodes, the Melvins and Helmet, and a few other episodes that we've done. He and I uh, kind of came up through the ranks, much like uh, Mark and Chris came up through the ranks in high school together. And at one point, we found a used uh, Thin Lizzy Greatest Hits CD, and we shared it for like five years. <laughs> so it would be funny it would be like is it my turn for uh your thin lizzie you know grace so and then i think he ended up borrowing it for like years and like i just kind of lost track of it and forgot he had it and so i was kind of bummed out that i didn't have it when i discovered emerald but um but yeah so J- emerald uh jailbreak comes out first and then you get johnny the fox came out and so that's that's kind of like the peak of of thin Lizzy stuff um but yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts on like, you know, Boys Are Back in Town, Jailbreak, that kind of like I got sick radio of those hits. real bad,
1: like real quickly when I was younger, just because yeah. it was,
2: I don't think I heard. Boys Are like, Back in Town I get sick of a lot sooner. Jailbreak I still like appreciate kind of when I hear it I don't radio. mind it
1: now because I never listen to the radio, so it's like a pleasant,
2: That's pleasant true. thing. But
1: yeah, back in the day I liked, I liked the the more, any stuff I, I remember hearing a lot of the, just like, you know, it's got the really traditional, like Celtic sounding, sure. you know, traditional folk-ish influence yeah. that always kind of. Interested me for some weird reason.
2: When I dig like, like an, an emerald Maiden thing, and, an emerald you even start to get that like really awesome like twin like guitar yeah. thing that Wishbone Ash and Thin Lizzy were doing. That eventually is going to really inspire Priest, Maiden, Maiden, the yeah. whole new album kind of thing. But you can kind of really hear the metallicness. I think it, a I lot know. of that
1: had to have some kind of effect on Steve Harris because oh. he, he seemed to like take that idea and just like you know melt it down to its pure essence, and then boom, yeah. every one of his songs that he writes the the music and does the lyrics for they are usually you know twelve minutes long now to have that kind of vibe sure. of you know Wishbone Ash, Thin Lizzy, or
2: well, and another record that came out this year, um, but we're not playing a song from it was UFO No Heavy Petting, which uh, pre, pre whoa is uh pre uh is gonna come right before Lights Out, which is kind of their big commercial big one. And speaking of Steve Harris, that's I think a, a band he talks a lot about is UFO. Uh, I think UFO, Wishbone Ash, Thin Lizzy. Um, and then probably some of the prog rock stuff that yeah. he was kind of rocking out to. I think those were really core bands for him. Um, some other stuff that we're we're going to be getting into. I mentioned Led Zeppelin. also, you know, they're part of that sort of British uh, scene. Um, and Presence, I think the, the bass player, John Paul Jones, uh, from what I was reading, he was the only one who was like sane when they were recording this. Like everybody else like everybody road, so. else was just so whacked out and crazy. Jimmy Page was just doing like his weird stuff at that point. Um and he was like the the one that like kind of kept them like held together when like they should have been like breaking apart at the seams and so uh kind of interesting there. Um but Rainbow Rising, um what can you say about this record? I mean, this is it's gotta be probably up there with like Masters of Reality maybe is like the heaviest consistent record from start to finish at this point in history. I mean, if you listen to like, you know, Stargazer and Terror, I mean, it's, and I've read interviews where like Richie Blackmore really like pushed them in that direction and then he was so pissed off that like that didn't take off even bigger Mm -hmm. that he kind of pulled the sound back a little bit and that's when he started to kind of eye that he had that kind of commercial yeah. aspiration that eventually in the late. I think 70s, if he would have kept it
1: pushed. But it was ahead of its time. I mean Yeah. Th- and then like look at the uh, you know, when Dio goes to, to join Sabbath later on, like those records have that same kind of like, you know, there's something
2: magical. I mean about Bob Dio Rules like a great guitar like, player. Bob Rules is just like oh, it's like a just the glacier moving through you. Yeah. I mean it's just so heavy. You know? And I
1: don't know anything at I mean, I'm sure there's tons, but nothing that was really like in my radar that had that weird. It wasn't necessarily. I guess it was fantasy. It was mm-hmm. like high fantasy lyrics. Like nothing else was really doing anything like that. Yeah, At the I'm time, sure there were a few like obscure D&D bands vibe. here, here and there. Sure. But yeah, in terms but like of the mainstream whole stuff. thing is like based on a mythology that they created themselves. Yeah, like, that's a very
2: like you know Iron Maiden. Yeah, for sure. For, yeah, you know, for them. No, but Rising has uh, always been. I mean, I think I discovered Rainbow the same way most people probably did on commercial, you know, like Man in the Silver Mountain and then yeah. kind of went backwards through that. But, you know, I w- Stargazer I was going to play, but I thought that was like almost too predictable um, because everyone kind of knows that song. And if you don't know that song, please go out and listen to Stargazer from Rainbow just for Richie Blackmore's solo. The stuff yeah. he does in the middle with the Mid- or Middle Eastern scales and stuff is like incredible. Dio's at the top of his game. But I actually think A Light in the Black, which is the song we're going to play, is uh, kind of underrated, too. It's the other epic song. It's the other eight-minute song on that record. And I, the reason I picked this one is um, it's got cool keyboard stuff going on, which, you know, Dio was—Rainbow or uh, Rainbow was kind of pulling that from Blackmore's experience, I think, with Purple and wanting to have those, some of those same elements. But less uh, on the same level. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Just It's different, uh, for sure. And you hear a lot of, like, weird keyboard intro stuff in, like, Tarot Woman, uh, especially— but I think the star, the all-star in uh, A Light in the Black is Cozy Powell, and I think he doesn't get talked about enough uh, in terms of some of the bombastic stuff he did on the drums. And I think this is his kind of highlight reel for uh, Rising. He really is just pounding, and there's some really cool speedy parts for 76 that yeah. I think uh, a lot of people hadn't heard.
1: Well, it's the thing, it's he's one of those drummers I think I appreciate more with age because his stuff isn't flashy, mm-hmm. but if you ever just... You know, I screw around on drums. I wouldn't call myself a drummer, but stuff that kind of stuff is it's deceptively simple to play. Yeah. with swing, that's that kind of slow. It's that there's nothing flashy about it at all. It's just like right there, but it's it's an amazing kind like of
2: like Phil Rudd from ACDC yeah. or something yeah. where it's like you know deceptively simple but hard to play because yeah. of like you're locking down like a lot of stuff.
1: Like yeah, not much is happening, but somehow they manage to keep some you know mm. keep it, besides just being this static beat and they keep it
2: going. And I forget where, I think Cozy Powell, did he come from like Cactus or Atomic Rooster or something like that? Or one of the bands kind of associated with that? Um, I want to say he did. But, Jeff Beck? Oh, he played with Jeff Beck? That yeah. makes sense. Um, for some reason, I thought he was in an offshoot of one of those bands, perhaps, or with some members from either Cactus or Atomic Rooster or something like that. I feel like I came across that. But um, another record, which we won't get to, um, the, but came out of the england scene was queens a day in the races too, or day at the races and that was right after night at the opera which was a huge commercial breakthrough the previous year with bohemian rhapsody and and some of that stuff but uh that's not one of my favorite queens Uh, i think the one they put out the year uh after which we highlighted in the 1977 episode is is a lot stronger yeah um but but i just wanted to at least mention that 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 was another big british record that kind of came out in this year and then we get to Black Sabbath, um, you know, sort of, it's weird. We're talking about Dio and, and where he's heading and like, we're kind of talking about Ozzy and where he's heading. And in a lot of ways they're heading in like a weird opposite trajectory, you know, <laughs> rainbow rising is like this incredible, like peak for rainbow. And I think the, the next record they put out in 78 is also a peak um, long live rock and roll. Yeah. Those are, I think are both just absolute masterpieces and it's funny because that's the same two years that Technical Ecstasy and Never Say Die come out, you know, and so it's it's interesting that he's gonna leap to Sabbath and Ozzy's gonna leap the other way. Um You you had a kind of a funny story about Technical Ecstasy that I, I actually just, didn't know.
1: Yeah, this is the first Sabbath I bought on my own on cassette. Yeah. And I was kind of bummed out a little bit that
2: <laughs> did you buy it based on the cover? What what drew you? It was to the only
1: then? Black Sabbath they had at the store. Okay. And it was like uh, it was either that or live at last. Okay. And it, the cover looks so crappy at Live at Last. Yeah. I was just like, eh, I don't want to buy a live record for the first, you know, thing I buy. But sure. I always remember liking Dirty Women on that. I thought yeah. it was a great and song. And Dirty
2: Woman I told Mark I, <clears throat> I had wanted to play, but it's like seven minutes long and I kinda yeah. just had to go with something. And I kinda thought, you know what, let let's play something that's maybe not as successful. Like Rock and Roll Doctor has some that's moments. That's the only
1: other song on it that I remember. That
2: are like yeah, yeah, and it's it's I think it was one of the singles, I, I think And I think it's got Cowbell on it from Yeah, the Yeah. It is. It's 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 pretty cool, but um you know, I didn't want to. I think it, this record is, um, you know, one of the charms of it is that it's not a completely realized record. It's it's kind of a mess, and so yeah. there are some really high highs and some low lows. And I'm not saying Rock and Roll Doctor is a low low, but I think it it speaks loudly. There's some weird. You can see some weird ideas in that song, like pop ideas and and other things that are going on. They're just not fully realized, you know. Yeah, and yeah. Um, whereas I think the experimentation they did previously on sabotage with the, like a lot of the keyboard stuff and a lot of the, the different types of songs that they did on that record worked, I mm-hmm. think some of the ideas they sort of tried to execute with with technical ecstasy don't work out as well. Um, I might even be a guy that likes Never Say Die a little bit better than Technical Ecstasy, um, but I don't know. I, I guess I, have like, to listen I, mean, I like side the title by track. Side. Um, For sure. Yeah, Johnny the Blade. There's a few other songs I, I kind of dig on, on Never Say Die, but again, I'd have to go back and, and kind of listen to that. Yeah, but I, I
1: haven't listened to that record in quite a while. Yeah.
2: I think uh, Technical Ecstasy, the, the title alone is, is pretty funny. I was reading about, like, I think it was Geezer was talking about it. And he's like, yeah, it's like the, the cover image, which looks like this kind of weird modern art kind of thing. Is it it's supposed pilots? to be like two, the, yeah, the- two machines, like fucking. That's why it's called technical ecstasy. I never like looked at it as like these two like robotic kind of things like having sex with each other. And I, I it's really never...
1: abstract. I mean, it looks yeah. like a pile of plates and a, and a skyscraper <laughs> shooting lasers at each yeah, other.
2: Yeah, yeah. It looks like something you'd it's see like uh, in a Duran Duran cover or something like that. You know. Yeah, but uh, it is interesting. So technical ecstasy, we definitely wanted to represent it because I think it's it's a, a definitely a, a direction that 1976 is going for one of the most important bands in the history of heavy metal. And then we're going to sort of, uh, this next set of music, we're going to end with one last British tune from, I think a band that, um, I grew up loving, but I think they, they do get unfairly, um, uh, well they're associated with glam rock and we'll talk a little bit more about the, the, you know, what a band like sweet, or at least my, my impressions. And I'm sure Mark has some pretty strong opinions on sweet as well. Um, Like why they fit into this and why they should show up on a show uh, about heavy metal and stuff like that. But uh, it's a song called Action and they put out a record called Give Us a Wink in in 1976. So we're going to get into this next set of music. We're going to start with Thin Lizzy Emerald from Jailbreak. And then Rainbow, A Light in the Black from Rising. Black Sabbath's Rock and Roll Doctor from Technical Ecstasy. And then we have Action from Sweet from the record, Give Us a Wink. And then we're going to end with a nice little surprise that we'll talk about when we come back that I'm sure most of you will know. So enjoy.
0: Down from the Glen came the men with their shields and their swords to fight the fight they believed to be right. Where there was plenty They brought plunder, swords and flame When they left the town was empty And children would never play again There were many born today. Then onward over the mountain, outward towards the sea. They come to claim the emerald. Without it, they could not leave.
2: the Ramones, Judy is a Punk from the album Ramones, we had Sweets Action from Give Us a Wink, Black Sabbath's Rock and Roll Doctor from Technical Ecstasy, Rainbows, A Light in the Dark from Rising, and we started with Thin Lizzy's Emerald from Jailbreak. So a couple tunes there that are kind of interesting, because they don't necessarily always fit in the the metal genre. Um, I'll go back to Sweet for a a, a brief moment, and then we can kind of unpack the impact that the Ramones probably had on, on a lot of metal history. Also known as The Sweet. The sweet, yeah. They were the sweet for uh, a lot of... Um, I think in the UK they were the sweet, weren't they? And then just sweet in the US. Yeah, and I think that's kind of how, how it was. <clears throat> but I um, uh, there's a cool book that I got for my rock and roll history class called Shock and Awe from a writer called Simon Reynolds. It's glam rock and its legacy from the 70s to the 21st century. And I haven't read the whole thing, but I, I kind of... It's as
1: thick as, like, uh, it's, it's a stand or something. Yeah, it's, it's
2: stupid. I mean, it's it's <laughs> like 600 pages. 600 pages. It's okay. just really thick paper, it must be. And they talk about the the role that this song Action played, which I think it was released as a single. Um, it might have actually been released as a single, technically, at the end of 75, but it shows up on the, uh, Give Us a Wink, which wasn't put out until 76. And it says a massive hit on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, Fox on the Run was followed by their most punk statement yet, Action. An embittered biting of the hands that had fed them for so long. Action is a massive fuck you to record biz exploiters and manipulators with the sound of cast registers chiming in the Sabbath heavy breakdown. A solid size hit in the UK and the US. Action didn't buoy up buoy up sales or cred of the accompanied album Give Us a Wink though. The missing link between the Archies and anarchy in the U.K. The Sweet could never quite shed that tangy taint of bubblegum. So it's like they tried; they they were trying to break free from kind of uh, like, like monkeys, like bubblegum, glam like, rock like kind of thing.
1: Like you know, produced stuff too. All the harmonizing vocals, yeah, and it, was like it is
2: catchy as hell. Oh, I yeah. loved Sweet when I was a kid, especially when I got the Days of Confused soundtrack and it had Fox on the Run on. It. I was like, this song's awesome, yeah. you know. And I think I end up getting Sweet's greatest hits, and I always loved Action. I always thought it was, uh, you know, a heavier tune than than you know um, than a lot of their other stuff. And if you listen, go back, you know, if you choose to, but you listen to the solo in the last like 30, 40 seconds of Action, and that's like that's as Sonic as almost anything else we're going to be playing on this episode. But I think people just automatically would dismiss it because it's sweet, you know, like who cares? But I, I think all the harmony and stuff in it too. It's like. Exactly. You know. Exactly. I don't know if
1: people are, want that.
2: Yeah, and I think I think I would put Sweet maybe in the same category as um, maybe the same way some people dismiss Kiss, but I think like a band like Sweet was probably a gateway into hard rock for like a lot of like younger people. Just like Kiss yeah. could be a gateway into like harder stuff.
1: Uh, but Sweet kind of followed that that whole thing of the '50s idea of songwriters giving you know, and yeah. same with the Monkeys, like people Absolutely. giving you know, you're the talent. You put you know, you put your yep. little spin on these, but you've got you know a handful of Old Jewish guys usually in a yeah. back room yeah. writing, and you know, Stoller or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. writing these great, you know, catchy songs for, for sure. You. Yeah. And still, they still have that same kind of like, you know, two minute thirty second, you know, yep. jukebox vibe. As Absolutely.
2: Well. I kind of like. I think the Runaways kind of got their start as that too, almost like a project. And then they, I think they kind of got a little bit more independent on their own towards the end yeah. of their their run and stuff. And certainly their solo careers have have spoken that but yeah it's kind of just an interesting one I thought I'd throw a curveball in because I think it's interesting because in a way I think some of that same kind of like bubblegum, hard rock sensibilities are what made a band like the Ramones kind of appealing because the Ramones yeah. were coming out of a straight Phil Spector kind of vibe they wanted to play Phil Spector like pop teen symphonies but they were all hopped up on like speed and they just <laughs> couldn't didn't know how to play their instruments, so yeah. they just kind of went for it you know um, I remember, you know, D.D. Ramone kind of talking about he was the bass player. Him sort of talking about, like, we wanted to play, like, three-minute songs. We just couldn't. We just, they all end up a minute and a half or a minute and 25 seconds. And, you know, that song, Judy is a Punk, is, is just, it's a jolt. You know, I mean, um, you put that, like, I have it in my playlist um, in the car, Next to a song we're going to be actually hearing in this next set, which is uh, Aerosmith "Nobody's Fault," and the second that that Aerosmith song fades out, "Judy's a Punk." I mean, like it it wakes you up. You're like, "Holy shit!" Just grabs you by the throat and goes. And like we were saying, this is such a weird down period, '76, in terms of you know a lot of the dinosaur bands, um, you know, are kind of on the they're waning. You know, yeah. Stadium Rock has probably reached its peak. You know, and and we're you know less than a few months away as the Ramones break in seventy six from punk breaking on the other side of the, the ocean and really this new wave of a totally anti stadium rock kind of jolt of energy that's about to kind of kick into music and but so still
1: yeah I think it's weird because punk rock seems like it it all keeps coming back to, you know, fifties rock and roll. They they tried to go back and really like capture what started original rock and roll. Misfits is another one of these bands that tries to do that as well with Yeah. They kind of sing song. stuff. They do, like, rockabilly sing-song, yeah. Yeah, where they try to, like, bring in these, you
2: know, not doo-wop, but... Uh. No, it's, like, big melodies and stuff. I think it's the the sort of the... Well, I think early... I think 50s rock and roll was marketed to teenagers. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, Chuck Berry, Elvis, you know, sure. Little Richard. But there's... there's doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that that's, like, the intended market, you know. And so it had this, like simplified innocence to it and this like uh, you know wasn't trying yeah it wasn't trying to put guitar solos or you know I mean Chuck Berry did guitar solos but they were like 10 seconds long you know stuff like that Um, there were licks yeah yeah, exactly riffs and licks and things like that Um, yeah and I think the Ramones kind of fall right into that but you know Certainly, even though they're a punk band, no one I think uh, that's a listener of our, the podcast, even if you don't like the Ramones, is going to dismiss the impact that they're about to have on music and especially on heavy metal. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're a big wake up call to a lot of bands to get off their asses and, and get a little bit faster and more energy and, and stuff cut like that. The bullshit. <laughs> yeah, cut the bullshit. Let's get after it. So, and so speaking of across, uh, you know, back in America, we were coming back across the pond uh, with the Ramones, um, back to sort of the the the. I think the American market. This is probably the strongest. I um, probably the strongest the American hard rock heavy metal scene probably ever was as like a, a vacuum. If that makes yeah. sense, um, it's going to get much stronger when you get to the LA scene and, and stuff like that in the '80s. But by then, a lot of the global market has sort of joined in it. But I think like you look at Kiss and Nugent and Aerosmith and Bluestar Cult. I mean. Those were like dominating, kind of like they were starting to play stadiums and they're really starting to like, you know, dominate the radio. I mean, 76 is also in like Boston's debut comes out. You know, like yeah. that's another one of those kind of like records. They're, they're that, in that,
1: yeah. I mean, especially production-wise, they definitely fall in that yeah. bombastic, huge, you know, I, you sound. Know, that everybody... I want to say
2: like this is like when Bad Company and Foreigner and like all yeah. that that stuff's all coming out. And that stuff's probably a stretch to pull into the metal realm, but it's certainly a, the, hmm. the edge of hard rock. You know, yeah.
1: Um, I mean, it's no more of a stretch than you know than hair metal and all that shit. Yeah, that's true. You know, that's metal. I always thought it should be taken off the hair metal tag. It was just that was just like a re envisioning of. Uh, of the, you know, the old uh, glam.
2: Yeah, really. The, the early 70s glam stuff mixed with like... Like Aerosmith or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, the Boston kind of Aerosmith swagger, you know, with a little bit of that 60s, like Led Zeppelin, like cock rock, like, yeah. you know, like let's let's the screw way, some groupies in the way back. Way too self-aware. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's just kind of an interesting time, and um, we're going to be first looking at uh, Blue Oyster Cult, and we've, we've talked a lot about Blue Oyster Cult in the early 70s episodes that we've done and didn't get a chance to play uh, anything off of um, Fire of Unknown Origin, which came out in 1981, I believe. Yeah, it was the year of the heavy metal soundtrack. Um, but Agents of Fortune is like, I think everyone that, even if you don't know Blue Acer or everyone knows Don't Fear the Reaper. And, you know, it's one of those songs, like, I hear and I forget that it's also a great song, like, you take it for that's granted on the water that it's yeah yeah, yeah you, you take for granted that it's so good i mean that like that almost like minor chord like you could almost say that's like a minor chord almost like a proto break murder day like know, guitar solo that yeah. you know that like breakdown in the middle but, yeah, again, like you hear it all the time, so you kind of forget or you think of like the Will Ferrell Saturday Night Live skit with Cowbell. And, you know, like yeah. there's all these like but other yeah, like associations. There's the a lead thing in the middle of It's fantastic. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That like minor chord kind of like it's almost Somewhere like a brain murder start, day. You know,
1: screaming the guitar into it.
2: Yep. <laughs> yeah. Awesome stuff. Uh, but it's a great record the whole record as a whole and it's one i've recently like spent a little bit more time with i always kind of focus on the first three blue oyster cults
1: usually where i'm at and this
2: is the fourth one so they put out that live record um which i think we featured in the year i think it was either 74 75 and i was telling mark i think we talked about this in the last talk said it gave them i think an opportunity to sort of catch their breath and kind of get refocused a little bit um and i think a lot of the songs sound better than the than the uh, studio versions on that yeah record. i think there's you know it's an incredible amount of energy i think there's certain bands that just are like really captured better live mm-hmm. you know um and we'll, we'll sort of be kind of talking about that a little bit later when we get to kiss you know K- kiss i think it was a band that benefited. It was on your feet or on your knees right the, yes the yep. okay yeah i always forget the name yep. though yeah it's got that great uh it me 262 the the live version of that um is that the name of that song? I think it is. But yeah. th- like some of the solo work in that song is really, really incredible. But one of the people, and this kind of connects, the reason I sort of included this uh, at the beginning of this next set, because in a weird way, it connects to the last song we just heard, which is the Ramones. Because um, the person that's going to be singing on this song, which is called The Revenge of Vera uh, Gemini, it's not Gemini, I think they say Gemini, um, it looks like Gemini, uh, is Patti Smith. Uh, who kind of along with the Ramones will sort of fly the, the New York punk flag uh, in the very early years with the, the Patti Smith band. Um, she doesn't sound like punk. Punk is more of an attitude than a sound. Then. For sure. She, and she's a poet. You know, She's kind of coming out of a completely different thing than like the Brits were. But it says that Smith was briefly considered as the lead singer uh, for Blue Oyster Cult. She contributed lyrics to several of the band's songs, including uh, Debbie Denise Baby Ice Dog, Career of Evil, Fire of Unknown, Unknown Origin, and then of course the Revenge of uh, Vera Gemini, and then Shooting Shark. Um, she was romantically involved with Alan Lanier, uh, the keyboardist for Blue Oyster Cult as well, and she said around the same time she was—that's when she was writing for Rolling Stone and doing like Cream Magazine, like rock okay. journalism and stuff. So, but uh, I, I found this, and I don't know how much truth this is, this is, or if this is just sort of a mythos that like the Blue Oyster Cult band sort of wrote. Uh, about this song and the name of the record, but it says that uh, the agents of fortunes were members of a cult dedicated to the rebirth of an ancient demon race on earth. They were led by Vera Gemini, who was the daughter of a human and a demon. So that's pretty metal. That's pretty cool. That's kind of, you know, Elizabeth Bathory or some kind of, you know, 80s black metal kind of, you know lyrical thing i don't think it's a real cult i think it's probably just something they sort of invented uh but i do know that boys or cult were you know interested in like occultish kind of things and stuff like that um i don't know if it was lanier himself but i think one of the uh the other guys i'm, tr- I'm trying to remember their names escape me offhand but you know it adds an eeriness to this song i mean patty smith i always have found to have had kind of a an eerie vibe to her vocals when she wants to. You know, she kind of yeah. has that PJ Harvey kind of thing where she can kind of add, like, a... She's not, like, the best vocalist, but she can kind of, like, intonate some some weird, like, emotions and feelings out of it. But, uh so, you know, it's kind of cool when you listen to the song and you kind of know the background of, like, what she's singing about this kind of, you know, demonic kind of cult savior woman, uh, you know. Great. Buck Dharma. Buck Dharma. He was the one, I think, that was kind of maybe dabbled into... Okay, looking at the occult a little bit more, and then we get to Aerosmith Rocks. Um, you know, just a, a fantastic record. My favorite Aerosmith record. I think uh, commercially or critically, I think it's it's always looked at along with Toys in the Attic as I think the their their kind of masterpiece. Um, I found a little excerpt here. I kind of had it marked off. Uh, a little thing about Rocks. It said. The Just Say No campaign suffered the greatest blow in rock history with the random, drug-induced, chaos-seduced, naysayer-reduced greatness of rocks. <laughs> Near unanimously Aerosmith's finest moment, each song runs free in a different field. And then it kind of lists off some of the, 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 the songs that, you know, Rats in the Cellar is a great song on this record. Um, Back in the Saddle, I mean, that's another song that you don't appreciate how, like, awesome that riff is. You know, you Wasn't hear so that re-recorded? Much. It might have been or something. I might have been. Like I, I, I
1: remember seeing like the video
2: for that, or maybe they just did a new video for they it in the eighties. But I saw that happen a lot in the eighties. Sometimes you know. I mean, well, it happened White Snake with all you know for sure. Other old stuff yeah. get re-recorded. But uh, <clears throat> but Rox is you know as I've kind of gotten big into the seventies Aerosmith stuff in the last year or two. You know that that that's the one I put on definitely the most. And nobody's fault. The song we're going to play for it is is probably one of their most Sabbath-y kind of songs that they have out there. And it uh, d- doesn't get played on the radio, which is one of the reasons we sort of picked it. But again, this is I think Aerosmith. You know, Toys in the Attic came out the year prior, and I think this is like a one-two punch of them kind of announcing themselves as a, both a, a critical force in metal, but also a commercial force now too. Yeah. You know, um, you know, when I think of the Days of Confused soundtrack, I think of you know Aerosmith and Cars pulling into the the, the parking lot. You know, and speaking of Days of Confused, that's that movie is about. 1976 last day of school there so we're we're right in that sweet spot era of kind of kinda, you know swanky hard rock 70s stuff yeah this is kind of the
1: this is, a, is this i don't even i'm trying to think of the era when the term hard rock was like it was kind of a badge of honor it was before the metal term was really thrown on too yeah.
2: much i feel like we're in it this is it yeah especially american hard rock yeah you know um I think of a lot of those outdoor kind of like festivals that they were doing. I forget what like they were the Monsters called. Monsters of
1: Rock and stuff with yeah. Kiss and Aerosmith and Iron Maiden and like. It was but all that was big. like more
2: eighties. But like, yeah. I feel like there were some. I remember on the um, Metal Evolution when they did the America American Metal in the seventies. They they kind of focused on like Nugent playing a lot of those, Kiss playing a lot of those, Aerosmith playing a lot of those, and it yeah. was like definitely like mid seventies. I think that's where like Van Halen like, sure. um, you know like towards the end of it van halen and even i think motley crew um on the too fast for love era like came out and made a huge dent quiet riot i think mm-hmm. the same one is like 82 or 83 they both played one of those like giant outdoor festivals and like like broke really big after that you know um and i just think of that era it's like the peak of like you said hard rock stadium rock you know like those kind of packaged tours um is this the year that Rush and Kiss went on tour? It might be. 75, 76, I feel like. Um, and they they have that funny story in the that Rush documentary where they Kiss is, like, making fun of them. They just, like, after the shows, like, went back to their rooms. and are all married. Yeah, the just kid, did you know? nothing. Yeah, so it was pretty funny. But, yeah, definitely the, it's that, like, larger-than-life kind of rock thing
1: sort of going on. Well, and they hit a, a certain point where, I mean, everybody makes fun of that era, too, of just this glut. Of production, like when the when prog rock became less interesting and just more like, yeah, like you have to read a book to even care about this yes record, or whatever. sure just,
2: ELP and some of that kind of stuff. It just
1: becomes too much to where it's just like this big experience, but it really says nothing.
2: Yeah, yeah. and some of that stuff is funny because I like a lot of prog from like the early seventies. But by the mid-70s, not a lot of that stuff's like, too appealing to me. There's, like, a Genesis record maybe or two that probably is 74, 75 that I I still don't mind. Yeah. Uh, But, like, the Yes stuff by that point and and all that other stuff. But yet I still do find something appealing about this, like, stadium hard rock heavy metal. Like, it still, like, has, like, a warm fuzzy feeling for me, you know. Yeah. Maybe it's because it is like more simplified and, and things like that so there's like a catchier element to it's it you don't immediate. have to like penetrate it yeah so much maybe um, and speaking of like music from the gut we've got uh, our boy the nuge um, free-for-all probably his best solo record from start to finish you know at least critically and I think um, musically you know, I mean the title track is a, is a pretty big song um, and the song we're gonna play is is hammer down which I discovered when I was putting together the the countdown. And uh, unbeknownst to me, and I don't know if you knew this before you encountered this song. No, I, I looked it up as well. Yeah, like I just remember being like, man, the vocals are really, really rocking. Because well, he had so like, many
1: different vocalists, too, so I was like, I know this yeah, isn't him.
2: So. Yeah, I wanted to read up on it, and lo and behold, who's, uh, who's singing it's vocals? It's Meatloaf. And, yeah, Meatloaf. Pretty <laughs> bad out of hell, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were trying to figure out, um, I don't know if we ever looked up when uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show came out. I have a feeling it was probably after Rocky Horror. But uh yeah Meatloaf is singing on about half or a little bit more than half the record. He's uh the vocalist on Free For All. Um and he he certainly sings Hammer Down and I mean he does uh tracks 3 5 6 8 and 9. Yeah, sounds about half. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's sweet. Yeah, and he's uh he kills it. I mean, this is great vocal hooks, you know. I mean, the thing about, you know, I think of a lot of the stuff I don't like about maybe 80s Nugent is he's always the one singing. And I think maybe like outside of Fred Bear, I just don't maybe care as much for like Nuge vocals. But I like his guitar when he's like matched with like great vocalists like he doesn't sing on Stranglehold, which I thought for years he sang on that song, but it was uh
1: I always thought that all that shit was just him. Yeah as a kid. But
2: it's like he when he gets like a when he can focus on guitar and he gets like the right vocalist, those are the songs that I think have more resonance for me when it comes to, you know, nugent stuff. But yeah. uh this doesn't have the long drawn out solo like Stranglehold, but it does have some, you know, fierce guitar playing and it's a really immediate like goes for the, 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 the uh you know goes for the throat kind of a, a nuge song. So We'll listen to Hammer Down and then we get into Mark's childhood a little bit. And uh this might be is this the first time we've played these? Oh no, we played no, Rocket Ride. Yeah, uh, we played Rocket Ride just recently. Yeah. So. so but it's it's only recently that we've actually explored actual uh Knights
1: and Satan service. Yeah. 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 Um I remember my I got before I even heard the band, I had T shirts. And comic books. I knew
2: who they were. I knew their image before I knew their songs. Yeah, my... And I grew up in the eighties post makeup, but like it oh, still yeah, was yeah. like part it permeated the, the pop culture consciousness. Yeah, I've know? got
1: a picture of my sister newborn in nineteen eighty and I've got the Gene Simmons, you know, iron on T shirt or whatever. Yeah. And I don't think my parents ever heard a kiss song. <laughs> it maybe Detroit Rock City. Detroit or something. Rock City. They never rock heard and roll
2: all night. Yeah. All
1: the other innuendos and like lyrically it was just like filth. <laughs> <laughs> but most of the lyrics weren't printed either. You know Yeah. So,
2: yeah. That's true.
1: And I just would hear stuff on the radio. I was I thought they were more image than I was disappointed when I heard what they sounded like, to be honest. Like most people were, I think.
2: Gotcha. You wanted, wanted to be more not
1: like more Alice Cooper I, sure. I was disappointed with Alice Cooper too. Yeah. That's why when I heard, you know, like Thrash and Deathman, I was like, okay, this it makes fit sense. fit the
2: image you want it. Yeah, yeah. It was, it really, like, rose to the, the horror movie aesthetic. Because if Kiss would have sounded like
1: the Ramones or like a punk rock band that was a little more fierce, I think yeah. it would have done some more for me. But
2: in retrospect,
1: I love all this
2: shit. So. Yeah, yeah. And I've, um,. It's funny because I was always torn in the middle because Chris, uh, who's on the show with us, uh, who writes for Decibel and, and started Requiem I think now Mark, it's a point of pride for him. He, yeah. he,
1: he's got to pair yeah. his ass about it. Yeah,
2: <laughs> and, uh, and I know some people that really, like, really hate Kiss. And I, I know a lot of people, you know, like Mark and, and Jeff Wagner talks a lot about Kiss. And so I know they hold a really special thing for that generation that's just, like, above me, you know? Yeah. I kind of came of age, I think I told you, like, you know, let's put the X in sex and like, yeah, it was just not, you know, so my, my association with kiss is different, but I've, you know, retroactively gone back and, and, you know, learned to appreciate them. Um, but kiss, you know, they, they put out their debut in 74 and then, um, you know, studio, I think dress to kill was 75 and hotter than hell. Oh, hotter than hell and their debut both 74. And then their big record was, of course, Alive, which came out the year prior to this. Um, Much of it recorded near where we're recording right now. Kobo, right? Yeah, Kobo in uh, Detroit. And I think that was like their big breakthrough uh, from a commercial standpoint. And then I think that carried over into their their studio records with Destroyer uh, coming out first and then uh, Rock and Roll Over. I think the first record on its own, if you didn't look at what they look like, I think it's a good
1: garage rock record. Yeah, I like that record. I like sure. that
2: record a lot. Black Diamond and, and uh, Hundred Thousand Years. Like, there's some yeah. songs that I go to quite a bit. Um, I guess what Deuce, yeah, Deuce, Strutter, yeah. Gorgeous. Where, yeah. where do you place Destroyer in importance for them? Just from like the cover imagery, and then you know, a song like "We're Gonna Play God of Thunder," which to me is. Do you see that as a real big leap forward towards metal, just based on subject matter and kind of the, the way the s- Gene assembled that song? Well, actually, it's a Paul song, but Gene singing, I think. Yeah, it's
1: it's weird because it definitely has Gene sensibilities. Mm-hmm. It's a real percussive song, um, but really, the, I think that record, and as a whole, sucks. As far as like the the diversity of its bizarre, like it's got great expectations, which is one of the most corny really okay. songs. Like, that's Gene and Bob Ezrin. But shout it out
2: loud is pretty anthemic. Yeah, shout know. out
1: loud, Detroit Rock City. Is, do you, this you love is what, me on that record? Yeah, yeah, that's um, kind of like country. Beth was on this as well. It's oh, just all over the place. Yeah. Flaming this Youth. Is tough. Yeah. Um. But God of Thunder has been covered by, so, and it sounds cool. The cover looks awesome.
2: Yeah, the cover is incredible. Like I don't know how
1: many times that cover has been, you know, like parodied or. Yeah.
2: You know, I mean, the cover Rock and Roll Over is pretty amazing too. Yeah. You yeah. know, what I mean,
1: on the back they're all like hanging out with like geishas and shit. Yeah. Or yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> Yeah, because this yeah the record has some some of the be- like bigger like songs. Beth but, was gigantic. But them. as a whole, is like it's kind of dis- like I'd rather go back to the stuff where it's a little more consistent and weird.
2: Yeah, yeah. But
1: um, for for like a commercial album though, I mean it's pretty it's pretty fantastic. So I guess
2: you know you see bands like you know Death covered God of Thunder, um, you know Entombed, Entombed covered you know so I mean, that's got to mean tons. something it's got to mean that yeah. that that kiss meant something to these like later death metal bands or is it that god of thunder is like the heaviest kiss song of the 70s it's,
1: it might be the easiest one to play
2: yeah <laughs> yeah dun, dun,
1: dun, dun. i mean it's like the it's a like quintessential heavy metal riff yeah it's like yeah. a beavis and butthead yeah, metal yeah. riff.
2: You know? yeah dun, 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 dun. for sure for sure yeah so I guess I, I didn't know because you're. I, I turn to you for all my my Kissology. <laughs> um, well, like when I
1: was when I worked at Relapse in the in '96, um, Sean Pelletier and Jeff Wagner. I we were out, We'd hang out with them occasionally. or I would hang out with them occasionally, and we were the only people in the office that really liked Kiss at all. And that's when the like the reunion stuff was starting to yep, happen. And the
2: unplugged record. Yeah, and and that's stuff, when yeah. Uh,
1: Wagner first turned me on to Kiss music from the Elder. Yeah, which is a great. It's you know it's going to be this big. You know, epic. Uh, Broadway show type thing, then they turned it into this bizarre yeah. record, but that's like their weirdest, I think. Like, and nobody cared about that record except for a handful of people because they wanted a bit it of, to
2: be the same thing that it kind of always been, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, that was not accept that. That
2: was, pre, that from that was pre, uh, lick it, um. Well, it was came out in 81. Okay, yeah. So, Vinny Vincent and some of those guys didn't join until 83, I think. Yeah, I don't know it was it was like when it was recorded. Creatures of the Night was 82, and that was, like, the last... Was that the last original lineup? Was Creatures of the Night? No, Creatures of the Night has... Uh, I think that's... Oh, that's got What's-His-Nuts... Um... Oh, no, that is the last one. Is it? Okay. Yep.
1: No, that's got Winnie Vincent. He's on Creatures of the Night, too? I think so. Is he? Or no, okay. that's Eric Carr.
2: Is it Carr? I think Carr's it's on Eric it. Eric Carr. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um... But yeah, that's, you know, so KISS has always been a strange band a kind of elusive, but I think, I you know, God of Thunder, I, I debated whether or not to, like, play this because it's such, like, a known song, but at the same time, it's perhaps the most metallic song of this era of KISS and, and I think had a tremendous influence on generations of future metalheads that became some of the bands that, like, are mean a lot to us, like in sure. tomb, Death, you know. Yeah all those kind of bands and I mean stuff. Kiss
1: was a big I think it was a super like big entry band for almost anybody because it was visually at least it was the most obnoxious thing you could cover wise you look at a cover is like this has got to be cool yeah
2: yeah. so
1: like as you know from a 15 year old perspective or 12 year old perspective I mean from for
2: me as a 7 year old it was mm-hmm. awesome <laughs> I wonder if Kiss is sort of like the the 70s equivalent of like what Michael Bay movies were like the last couple of decades where it really is like it taps into like the id. It's like everything like a 12 or 13 year old boy would want in like one thing. Cuz you know, that's yeah. my problem I've had like is I I think grew- they're
1: more layered than Michael Bay though. Probably.
2: Cuz <laughs> like on the surface it says a lot. <laughs> yeah,
1: like the, you know, they've got they've got some hard rocking bits, but if you listen they're really sappy. Yeah. Like yeah. way more not like bay is sappy but it's that's in the sap he's in the sappy sense of
2: it's like put on
1: personal sacrifice yeah. you know this all it's, it's,
2: it's cliche like to yeah. a, a fault you know because I can't I can't penetrate like Bay movies after like the rock you know like you know like that's I saw did you see pain and gain I did not
0: it wasn't it was terrible
1: okay. I didn't realize it was a Michael Bay movie till it ended I was yeah. like this is fine just to like
2: layer on and watch the stupid movie but transformers like, 2 just hurt me so badly uh, I, can't, I can't handle any of those It's just It just It hurt bad But um, Speaking of Sappy We got a double shot of Kiss Because we're going to two records Yeah And uh, Rock and Roll Over is not as strong I I, mean, I don't know I don't know what your feeling is If you like it Maybe it wasn't as commercially strong As Destroyer I don't know how it's kind of viewed from uh, You know From like It's A, a music perspective But I mean know. it's got some decent Like Calling Dr. Love is a personal Great song Favorite yeah. You know
1: there's Make a, a love. Of... Make it
2: love we were I was kind of debating with Mark yeah. which song we should play because that's got kind of like a proto speed kind of riff to it. So we settled on I Want You though. Uh I love the chorus to this. Yeah, uh, I it's think just, it's great. Just huge. Baby, baby. <laughs> yeah. Uh kind of starts with like an auspiciously like melodic beginning and then kind of kicks in, you know.
1: It's got kind of, it's one of their like prototypical songwriting
2: structures I think. It's yeah. almost like they their ballad like, you know, that punches in the face by the end. For sure, for sure. So, all right. Well, let's get into this American scene. Let's kind of uh, let's unpack it. We've talked enough about it here. Um, I'm just trying to think before we get into it. Uh, other American records that I didn't mention that we're not going to play. Uh, no, I think I hit on everything. I think we're playing most of the stuff that was was big in the American stuff. Um, so we've got Blue Oyster The Revenge of Vera Gemini from Agents of Fortune, Uh, Aerosmith, Nobody's Fault, from Rocks, Ted Nugent, Hammer Down, from Free For All, Double Shot of Kiss, we got God of Thunder from Destroyer, and then I Want You from Rock and Roll Over, and then we're going to end with uh, another American band, we'll talk a little bit more when we get back, and that's YNT, Earthshaker, from Yesterday and Today.
0: You're boned like a saint with a consciousness of a snake. is gone by and the thing I want out of It's not the you can And that's the first thing you can do. I want you. I want you. Baby, 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 I want you. I want you.
2: Earthshaker from Yesterday and Today, we had Kiss I Want You from Rock and Roll Over, God of Thunder from Destroyer, Ted Nugent Hammerdown, Aerosmith's Nobody's Fault, and Blue Oyster Cult's The Revenge of Vera Gemini. So that last tune, uh, y and that's their debut, Yesterday and Today, and that was a band, like, I don't know, I, I don't know what I associated them with. I think I thought they were, like, kind of cheesier than they actually ended up being. Maybe their stuff in the 80s, I had yeah. heard, and it just, like... Maybe I thought they were like an ingvy Mals. I don't know what I associate with were.
1: people that worked
2: at music stores because that's really? where I always saw the shirts. Okay, yeah. Maybe it's <laughs> like, like instrument stores. Yeah, it's like probably like uh, you know Michael Schenker type stuff. Sure. You know, yeah. and they were a California band. Um, and I was just telling Mark that from what I've kind of read about them and doing some research is they kind of in a weird way kind of paved the way in kind of the Bay Area and L.A. for um, like Van Halen a couple years later. Some of the, like that kind of like. <laughs> guitar driven kind of party rock uh, you know with like like I said a more Michael Schenker Eddie Van Halen kind of like focus to him. but yeah. you can hear it in that song in Earthshaker really really great stuff they're a band that's kind of surprised me and snuck up on me as I sort of put the stuff together so um, we are going to be moving away from both America and at least the United States um, and England and kind of moving around the world a little bit and kind of looking at this hodgepodge of sort of oddball stuff that was kind of going on at the time um and the first area in 76 that was doing some kind of interesting things was up north our northern neighbors um i mentioned uh all the world's a stage was a, a big live record uh kind of collecting the first i believe four rush studio albums four or five studio albums that they had put up to that point and then that kind of paved the way for 2112 which um kind of a big i mean 2112 you know rush had done long songs before they had certainly done some like 10 minute songs i think of like necromancer and and a few other ones but that was like the first rush record that got me back into rush in college um i found it in vinyl at new moon records and listening to that title track especially when they go into the second part of 2112 the um temple of uh syrinx i think or or something like that and it's got like some just really like metallic riffing i was like man i think i had heard so much tom sawyer that i had forgotten that rush kind of had like heavier roots and so 2112 is a big record for me a big record for rush as well because it kind of pulled me back into an appreciation of rush and i know you've kind of recently last few years kind of gone back and really kind of gotten way more into rush stuff yeah
1: the thing is i don't i don't sit there looking at the songs yeah the song titles but yeah i've gotten every single studio record by them when they're reissued a couple sure years sure ago. yeah
2: i have all their 70 i have all this stuff up to um the record after moving pictures um yeah, I can't signals, yeah I I like signals yeah i have everything actually like signals
1: grace under pressure and power windows quite a bit the yeah signals ZD's. i love
2: yeah signals i've i, have. I have not spent much time with grace under pressure power windows um the guy we worked at uh, New Moon with Gil uh, slagged on those records so much that it almost like <laughs> put a bad taste. I gotta, I gotta like erase that from my memory and kind of cleanse my palate. But I, think I appreciate a more, yeah, it Morris. Yeah, I think as I, I think it's if I like Signals, I'm probably bound to like those records too. But um, you know, we're only gonna be playing uh, part one and part two from 2112 because the whole thing itself is like a 20 plus minute. Uh, you know, it's the entire side of a vinyl back when it was released. But I think you'll get a taste of. Uh, you know, they're very focused at this point. Um, 75 was kind of a weird year for Rush. Um, those two records they put out in 75, one of them was kind of, uh, it was it, it didn't do so hot um, on the charts, um, Caress of Steel. Fly by Night kind of had like a little bit of a hit song with the, the title track. And I think after Caress of Steel, I think there was a lot of pressure by the record company to, you know, do something big and i think 2112 was uh was a commercial breakthrough for them it was yeah. one of the first albums from rush to chart on the us charts and stuff and so and then i think that's when they put out uh, all the worlds a stage i think it actually came out technically you know after 2112 it was the tour of 2112 that they recorded it on but um i don't like I said i i love rush uh you know i think i don't think there's a lot to say about rush that hasn't already been said you know if you haven't seen the documentary on rush uh, was it the something lighted stage Beyond the light stage Beyond the light stage yeah. it, i've probably seen it like six yeah times. it's great you it's know really fantastic good. uh and speaking of canada this is a band i've recently sort of stumbled into and it was thanks to some recommendations from martin popoff which is um he's been one of the, the especially the 70s stuff because that stuff's trickier to kind of track down and kind of know how to navigate through it so i kind of have his guide to 70s stuff but uh, a band called Tease. Who are from uh, pretty close to where we're recording right now, probably about, Windsor, probably about 15 minutes away, 20 minutes away, yeah. depending on how long it takes you to get over the old bridge to Detroit. Um, and again, they were like a, a strange band, uh, really well recorded. You know, when you listen to this um, recording of uh, Hot to Trot from their self-titled record, like you'll be like, man, this has like, a little bit of a, a sonic kind of template to it. But for whatever reason, and, and even Popoff kind of talks about it because he gives us one of the highest scores. He says probably the heaviest offering from Canada at this point, and they had a great live reputation. And for some reason, just nobody bought this record. And they kind of they they put out some more records after it, but it was just kind of like I think I think they expect it with some of the great songs that they had, and just nobody bought it. It's like an anvil situation. Yeah, it was like a total <laughs> yeah. Was welcome to Canada. Exactly. Yeah. This seems to kind of always happen. But you know, um, he compares them to like Montrose, uh, Y and Uh, Riot, Kiss, uh, Legs Diamond, Ted Nugent, you know, a lot of bands we played on previous episodes and even this one included, but it just, you know, it's a, it's a great promise that, that just never really kind of came through. But, uh, I don't know a lot more about the band, but I think, you know, judge for yourself. I think you'll, you'll kind of dig them. Uh, and then another band that had a pretty big year similar to Rush was ACDC, um, they had put out two records, uh, High Voltage and Live Wire, in Australia only in 1975. And then what they did is they compiled some of the better songs from both of those records and f- put it on a new version of High Voltage, which is considered the international version. And that's kind of considered the debut of ACDC in terms of outside of Australia. Mm-hmm. And that had like high points from both those records, including the song we're going to hear uh, in a bit, which is Live Wire, which is just, features one of my favorite intros. It's got uh, these great like moments where you know the whole song kind of cuts out and you almost hear like a like static or like patch chords and then it like kicks back in and you know Bond bonds at the top of his game you know um, the solos are fantastic they're
1: super young at this point too this I think. this is they're
2: very very young yeah and um, you know if that wasn't enough even though a lot of the stuff technically I guess was recorded in '75 you know ACDC follows it up with Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap in the same year and I mean you know talk about iconic you know songs um and records you know to put up two masterpiece type records in one year especially when it's your first year out you know i mean that's yeah. that's kind of crazy but um you know i mean high voltage features uh it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll tnt and then dirty deeds dirt, done dirt cheap has of course the iconic title track and one of my favorites from high school, "Big Balls," uh, you know, which, <laughs> every, yeah, every teenage boy gets a kick out of that. I mean, we just we used to listen to that in Grandcorcoon's bedroom and just laugh our asses up. Like, who in the hell would write this song? You know, um, I think High Voltage is the stronger of the two records, but I think it's you know clearly debatable. I think they're still firmly in the hard rock camp. I think they go a little bit more metallic the next year with "Let There Be Rock," which we covered in the 1977 show. But uh, they've always just kind of been like a weird amalgam they, blues rock. They do everything. The they're they're, you they're, you know, they're, they're like Motorhead. So, yeah. They just like they're gonna keep doing what they do, you know, kind of thing. And so I have a, a, a lot of respect for ACDC. And then we're kind of moving over into uh, other parts of Europe, and we got um, a band from Scandinavia, which we just were listening to called Flax from a record called One, and uh, the song's called Demon in Your Heart. And uh, Popoff described uh, the vocals as sort of like uh, Udo, a young Udo from Except, like burning in hell. And you, you mentioned you thought there was some kind of weird flange effect maybe could, on the vocals. It, I mean, we listened to it
1: on YouTube, so it might have been like just a crappy yeah. thing, but it was a weird, like that weird
2: watery kind of thing. The record's way desired. Like, it's, it's really expensive to track down the collector's oh, sure. market and stuff like that. But, uh,. The lyrics are pretty harsh too. I mean, it's pretty anti-Christian, which fits with the Scandinavia theme of, of years to come in the eighties. from Scandinavia. Where he from? just said Scandinavia. I didn't. It didn't lock down a country, so okay. I so got to imagine it's probably broad. Sweden, Sweden or Denmark. They seem to be the most musical, at least in this era, because Sweden was yeah. put out a few little uh, bands would kind of sneak out of there. Yeah. Um, every so often.
1: Yeah, I don't know when Finland
2: and Norway started their music. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Sports. Exactly. But uh, interesting tune. You know, that's probably one of the most obscure songs on, on this countdown. And then we'll end with Germany uh, and Scorpions. And we, of course, have already covered Scorpions pretty heavy on the Uli years. But uh, this is actually a song we didn't play on that. Uh, so I thought, eh, why not play it? Um, I think this is a big record, Virgin Killers, for uh, the Scorpions. Um, this might have been one of their big commercial breakthroughs, Maybe, even though In Trance was kind of their first, like, fully realized album. I think Virgin Killers may have charted it a little bit more uh, outside of Germany yeah. for them. And so it kind of fits with that theme that I was talking about with some of the other big bands in 76. But uh, really, like, Sonic, like, this this riff and this song is, like, cutting, you know? It's like, this and a, another song I don't know if we played called Hellcat are, like, those two mm-hmm. songs, like, are just, like, it's like a saw like moving through you it's, it's cool I, I dig it. so uh, but yeah so enjoy uh, we have a lot to say about Scorpions because we've exhausted talking about Uli and that era uh, quite a bit back in the day so let's we'll get right into it we got Rush 2112 part 1 and part 2 from the 2112 record then we got Tease Hot to Trot from the self titled ACDC's Live Wire from High Voltage Flax Demon in Your Heart from 1 and then we're going to end things with Scorpion's Virgin Killer from the record of the same name That was Scorpions, Virgin Killer from Virgin Killers, Flax Demon in Your Heart, ACDC Livewire, Teases Hot to Trot, and then we started off with a bit from 2112, Part 1 and Part 2. So as we exit today uh, or tonight, whenever you listen to this, I'm sorry, I'm always thinking of the moment when we're recording it. we're gonna sort of leave with a band. We we actually did a pretty good feature on these guys, um, but I think they're in that weird lost episodes that we haven't quite uploaded to the website yet. Um because I think it's in like the eighties or nineties. Yeah, we're at forty five yeah. three right now. So, so, uh you know, so you know, it's okay to to sort of spotlight them a little bit, but that's Pentagram. Um and you know, Pentagram we I think we could have put them in the set with the American bands, but I don't think they fit with any of that other stuff that was going on in America. They were totally doing their own, you know, unique journey. Um, I think they were more probably intimately connected probably with, like, Sabbath and some of the British sort of stuff is where they took some of their early inspirations from and even, like, um, probably Uriah Heap and, and other sort of bizarro, you know, kind of weird acts that were kind of gloomier and doomier, you know, a little bit more. Whereas I think... The gloomy doomy stuff didn't take off as big in America outside of like Pentagram in the early '70s. I think that was more of a British phenomenon until you get yeah, I mean, to it didn't like to late '80s here. Until like Trouble, I mean that's why I think Trouble yeah. was such a weird anomaly in the '80s here. You know, um, it was really like Candlemass was Swedish and Witchfinder General British. You know, there a lot of yeah. the doomier stuff was was coming from elsewhere. You know, it's almost like Thrash worked here, but it didn't work in England. Kind of thing, you know that like acid rain and yeah, yeah, exactly. Gary Jennings' first band. (laughs) So, but this is a pentagram, Star Lady, and um, it was recorded in September of '76 as part of a five-track demo that actually never came to fruition of like a release, and then of course it came out in the early two thousands on the uh, First Days Here compilation that Relapse put together. Uh, But this has an interesting sort of connection back to a previous uh, thing that we talked about because. This was a song, um, or the era when Paul and Gene were asked to go uh, watch them play, and they. It's appar- actually
1: recreated in the documentary. About Is it Bobby Yeah.
2: Yeah, and apparently, from what I've read, and I can't remember. if you, you might remember. I've only seen the documentary the one time. They didn't really have an image, and so Kiss were kind of down on them a little bit. They're like, "You guys, like, what's your image? What's your like marketing really came down approach? Into,
1: like, or, you know, the basement, yeah, or something where they're in
2: are yeah, it didn't go so well. I think Bobby was probably, like, uh, aggravated. Hi. or Yeah, exactly. <laughs> did something that, that upset them. But I know this song, Star Lady, uh, Gene saw the value in the song, actually wanted to buy it from Pentagram, and they didn't sell it to him to use for Kiss, which is kind of cool yeah it's it's pretty punk rock to you know not sell out and uh but it could have been a big hit and they could have been get some decent yeah it's it's, it's kind of hard to know yeah because they still could have recorded their own version of it and kiss could have priced potentially whatever their contracts were you never know With gene gene's a pretty ruthless businessman sometimes but uh
1: it created orange juice as dio said and uh
2: yes which other things yes shoes (laughs) shoes Shoes, exactly So, yeah, let us know what you thought uh, on 1976. Like I said, more of a almost a mainstream year, but I think that fits with the, the where it fits in kind of this, this pattern of evolution of, over the course of uh, the late 60s and uh, through the 70s and the early 80s. Uh, shoot us an email at requiempodcast at gmail.com. Uh, please leave us an iTunes rating. Uh, somebody just posted a new message uh, like a week or two ago. It was like late July. Oh uh, sweet. So it was pretty cool. Um, and so we always love iTunes ratings, uh, reading reviews and stuff like that. Cause I know that means a lot in terms of where we get kind of put and slotted when people go to search for metal podcasts. Uh, you can check us out uh, on Facebook, uh, at Mark and Jason and on Twitter at podcast Requiem. You can follow the countdown, uh, that happens pretty much daily, um, or semi daily, depending on how weekends go. And then also you can check out the website again, uh, www.com requiemmetal.com where you can sign up for patreon mark's artwork is up there uh support you know artists and, and original works and things like that and so for 1976 and pentagram star lady i am jason and i'm mark